Despite what they all say, politicians, all presidents for sure, generally hold a dim view of the press. As you know, I have a running war with the media. They are among the most dishonest human beings on earth. Even after acknowledging the obvious, presidents never like their press coverage. Donald J. Trump's running war with the media, and that's how he put it in a recent speech at CIA headquarters, seems to be in an altogether different category from what most presidents have done when they quarreled with reporters. Here's New York Times columnist Timothy Egan. Well, it's been fascinating. It's been historical. It's been unprecedented. Um, One's tempted to say that we've never seen this before. Welcome to Many Things Considered, where we consider politics through the frequently illuminating lens of history. I'm Mark Johnson, and thank you for joining us. So what is going on here? Is Donald J. Trump's running war just a one-off in American political history? Have we ever seen anything like this? And what can history tell us about presidents and the press? I want it clearly understood that from now on, ever, no reporter from the Washington Post is ever to be in the White House. Is that clear? Absolutely. It, unless it's a press conference. Yes, sir. In now, the briefings here. But, uh, on a briefing. In but the never, so never in the White House. No church service. Nothing with Mrs. Nixon does. You tell Connie, don't tell Mrs. Nixon because she'll approve it. No reporter from the Washington Post is ever to be in the White House again. And no photographer either. No photographer. Is that clear? Yes, sir. None ever to be in. Now, that is a total order. And, the, and if, if necessary, I'll fire you. You understand? I, I do understand. Okay. Yes. All right. Good. Okay. Thank you. That was Richard Nixon on December 11, 1972. He just won a massive re-election to a second term, and the Watergate story that would eventually bring him down was still just an annoyance. Nixon told his press secretary, Ron Ziegler, that he was done with the Washington Post. Well, we know, of course, he wasn't done. The Post's investigative stories, reported largely by Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein, would eventually lead to Nixon's resignation. In the second half of this episode, and we'll call it Richard Milhouse Trump, we'll probe further into Nixon's decade-long battles with the press. One scholar who has studied the situation sees some remarkable parallels between Nixon and Trump. But first, most journalists and politicians long ago adopted a belief that they needed each other, as nasty as the relationship can frequently become between politician and reporter. Here's how Virginia Tech political scientist Karen Holt, she's long studied presidents and the way they operate, describes the relationship. Both sides um, need the others both to communicate and to retain some level of legitimacy with the larger public. The press right now is at one of its lowest points in probably 130 years. Louis Leibovich was a longtime reporter with, among other publications, the Milwaukee Sentinel. Before his retirement, Leibovich taught at the University of Illinois. He's also written extensively about the press and the presidency. Part of the problem is that the media has been has been greatly weakened uh, in in quality and in um, number. Many of the, particularly print media, have cut back so far in their their, their personnel and their coverage in Washington that. Um, even when they do get a story, it's not much. So if Professor Louis Leibovich is right, the press as an institution is at a near-historic low point, 
An opinion poll say a vast majority of Americans do not believe much of what they read or hear from what many on the conservative end of the American political system call the mainstream media. Perhaps that situation goes some distance to explain the Trump administration's approach to dealing with the press. It can only be called a full frontal assault. The media should be embarrassed and humiliated and keep its mouth shut and just listen for a while, Trump's senior advisor Stephen Banyan told the New York Times recently. I want you to quote this, Banyan said. The media here is the opposition party. They don't understand this country. They do not understand why Donald Trump is the president of the United States. That's what you guys should be writing and covering. That this, instead of sowing division about tweets and, and false narratives. White House Press Secretary Sean Spicer there at his very first White House press briefing offering a blistering attack on the press. The president is committed to unifying our country, and that was the focus of his inaugural address. This kind of dishonesty in the media, the challenging that bringing about our nation together is making it more difficult. There's been a lot of talk in the media about the responsibility to hold Donald Trump accountable. And I'm here to tell you that it goes two ways. We're going to hold the press accountable as well. The American people deserve and as long, uh, deserve better, and as long as he serves as the messenger for this incredible movement, he will take his message directly to the American people where his focus will always be. And with that, a few other updates from the day. The president- Spicer's tirade was widely panned. Even a couple of former George W. Bush press secretaries questioned the wisdom of the attack, attack, attack strategy. Spicer was further panned when he untruthfully, the New York Times said he lied, talked about the size of the crowds at the presidential inauguration ceremony back on January 20th. Times columnist Tim Egan says the Trump approach, fighting over numbers, ratings, the president's obsession with polls, etc., is a part and parcel of a long-established pattern aimed at discrediting his critics. Trump even lied about his TV ratings as a reality television star. He was, he was telling lies about his ratings when he was on The Apprentice. And you're just seeing that same thing happen in the presidency now. He is so obsessed with numbers and image and ratings that um, it projects out to the press secretary. Now, Sean Spicer has a fairly good reputation. He's not just known as a hack. Um, and he's, you know, and, and by the way, you know, presidents always bring in their political people to be their press secretaries. Again, there's nothing wrong with that, but you, you can't, you can't lose your credibility in the first couple of days. He's, he's righted the ship a little bit, but again, it, I think it's more of a projection of, of this president who's sending his people out to tell, there's no other way to describe it, Mark, but taxpayer funded lies. And there's this. I did answer No, you did not. You did not answer the question of why the president asked the White House press secretary to come out in front of the podium for the first time and utter a falsehood. Why did he do that? It undermines the credibility of the entire White House press office on day one. Don't be so overly dramatic about it, Chuck. You're saying it's a falsehood, and they're giving Sean Spicer, our press secretary, gave alternative facts to that but the point remains alternative facts alternative facts four of the five facts he uttered the one thing he got right was zeke miller four of the five facts he uttered were just not true look alternative facts are not facts they're falsehoods trump advisor kellyanne conway with an exchange there with nbc's chuck todd 
that might go down in political history as some kind of point of no return in presidential press relations. As a former press secretary myself, I can attest to the fact that all politicians and all press secretaries try to put the best light on their positions. They want to color the story to emphasize what they think is the most significant, to play down the weaknesses. But Tim Egan says the Trump White House is doing something altogether different than that. There's a huge difference, Mark, between spin, polish, perspective-shaping, etc., and what Kellyanne Conway, the Trump advisor, called alternative facts. You can't say that the Seattle Seahawks beat the Atlanta Hawks two weeks ago in an NFL playoff game when that did not happen. Um, and that's what we're, we're dealing with here. Sean Spicer came out and said this was the largest crowd ever to witness an inauguration, period, which was easily refutable. Um, the president himself said that it, 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 the sun had come out just as he started to speak. Well, there's a zillion weather reports and cameras showing that, in fact, it started to rain just as he started to speak. So we have a huge difference between spin and shaping and just absolute facts. Now, we're dealing here with some pretty petty stuff, petty on the scale of war and death and taxes and prisoners and First Amendment rights and all of that. If they start telling easily refutable lies about big things, how many people were killed in the bombing yesterday, how many people will lose their health care under your proposal, um, what, what is the president proposing in his budget? What, what are the unemployment numbers? If this, sort of insti- if this line becomes institutionalized from the press podium on down, then we're in real, real trouble as a democracy because we can't make decisions with, it, with that sort of thing. Other administrations, to be sure, have gotten off to rocky starts with the press. Bill Clinton had his travel office controversy, and you might remember major missteps that he made over two attorney general selections. But the current situation, Virginia Tech scholar Karen Holt says, seems truly unprecedented. And it raises questions, at least for her, as to whether the Trump administration can form an effective government, giving the level of animosity that already exists between the White House and the press. I think, I think it's very difficult. And what's concerning to me is that it seems to amplify the divisions that are out there among, among the public and among various kinds of support and opposition groups. I mean, we really are at a, at a almost frightening point in our nation's history with, with the very notion of what is factual and what is not factual being continually called into question. And that makes it extremely difficult for, for some of the norms that many of us have thought have always been there in terms of the news media and news coverage. You know, we have an abnormal president, and as a result, we have an abnormal press secretary. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Many Things Considered. We're calling it Richard Milhouse Trump, Politics and History in a Podcast. We're all about considering how political history can inform our current debates about politics. I'm Mark Johnson. Appreciate you joining us. You can email questions, observations, or suggestions for future topics to me at Mark J, that's Mark with a C, M A R C J, at Gallatin, G A L L A T I N P A dot com. Many Things Considered is on Facebook. I'm on Twitter at the Johnson Post, which is where I also blog on politics and history. We'd like to know what's on your mind. And seriously, if you have an idea for a future edition, let me know.
Now, Chapter 2, Richard Milhouse Trump. Or had the great actress Betty Davis been counseling the press? She might have put it this way. Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. Stephen Solomon um, from New York University, where I teach uh, First Amendment law to graduate and undergraduate students. Stephen Solomon's most recent book is called Revolutionary Dissent, How the Founding Generation Created the Freedom of Speech. It was published last year by St. Martin's Press. Professor Solomon, once a writer himself at Fortune magazine, has studied the story of nasty encounters among politicians and the press that played out in the highly partisan newspapers in the earliest days of the American Republic. It was bitter politics at the highest level, but still different than the current American president. The revolutionary politicians employed surrogates to make their attacks, or wrote their own attacks under assumed names to protect their identity. That's not Donald Trump style. Jefferson, for example, hired uh, people to attack um, his enemies. Um, They really went at each other, but uh, they did it kind of, as you say, behind the scenes. They did it with uh, pseudonyms. They did it uh, by hiring people. Uh, Jefferson hired a a, uh, really uh, vitriolic, um, uh, terrible journalist uh, named Callender, who attacked... um, uh, a number of different uh, of, of Jefferson's enemies, and uh, this is the way uh, they did it back then. Uh, now it's much more open. Now imagine for a moment, if you can, the notoriously thin-skinned current occupant of the Oval Office handling a question like this. President, uh, I'm sure you're aware, sir, of the tremendous mail response that your news conferences on television and radio has produced. Uh, there are many Americans who believe that in our manner of questioning or seeking your attention, uh, that we're subjecting you to some abuse or a lack of respect. Well, you subject me to some abuse, but not to uh, any lack of respect, I don't think. John Kennedy, unlike Richard Nixon and President Trump, had a nuanced, even sophisticated touch with the press. Kennedy was a master of the press conference. He was cool, quick on his feet, funny, and a master at deflecting an awkward question. He also feuded with reporters in various publications. Again, all presidents do. Once ordering, all the White House subscriptions to the New York Herald Tribune be canceled. JFK didn't much like the newspaper's editorial policy. I have not found any record that Kennedy labeled the Herald Tribune as failing, as Donald Trump has described the New York Times, but the newspaper did go out of business in 1966. Kennedy also did not appreciate the Times' coverage of the growing U.S. involvement in Vietnam, and he quietly tried to pull a few strings behind the scenes and have a truly great reporter, David Halberstam, fired from the beat. It didn't work. Halberstam won a Pulitzer Prize for international reporting in 1964, the year after Kennedy's death, and then wrote a classic book about how Kennedy's advisors the best and the brightest, created what Halberstam called brilliant policies that defied common sense. That book is still valuable to understand the tragedy of Vietnam. But Kennedy also understood the press, understood the power of flattery, and access. James Rustin of the Times, who covered presidents going back to FDR, 
wrote early in Kennedy's presidency that JFK had, in his dealings with the press, broken every rule in the book and gotten away with it. Kennedy courted favored reporters, befriended many, dined with them, granted exclusive interviews. And this was a very different time. The press kept his secrets, including his sex life, out of the papers. Kennedy had nothing like the Internet or Twitter to contend with. But in at least one way, he was, like the current president, pretty skillful at the podium. Republican National Committee recently uh, adopted a resolution saying you were pretty much of a failure. I'm sure it was passed uh, unanimously. uh. Jay Hamilton, and I'm the director of the Stanford Journalism Program and the Hearst Professor of Communication at Stanford. Professor Hamilton recently wrote a fascinating piece in the Washington Monthly on the really striking parallels between Donald Trump and the president who once wrote Trump a flattering letter suggesting that the real estate tycoon might one day be president. Richard Nixon likely would not be surprised by how Donald Trump handles his media relations. Nixon had a clear media strategy, Hamilton wrote, go directly to the people through live television events, sidestep the White House press corps, and publicly denigrate journalists as biased elites. I think that the president has a view of the press as an enemy, as a source of information not to be trusted as biased, as self-interested, and the parallels between his view of the press and Richard Nixon's are striking to me. Nixon's animosity toward the press, perhaps rooted in his deeply paranoid personality, predated by a lot his arrival in the White House in 1969. The animosities dated back at least to Nixon's communist hunting days in Congress in the 1940s and 50s, something he referred to in what was at one time thought to be his last press conference. After losing the presidency to John Kennedy in 1960, Nixon ran for and lost the governorship of California, and he famously told reporters, For 16 years, ever since the Hiss case, you've had a lot of fun. Uh, a lot of fun. You, you, you've, you've had an opportunity to... Uh, to attack me, and I think I've given as good as I've taken. I leave you gentlemen now, (laughs) and uh, you will now write it, you will interpret it, that's your right. But as I leave you, uh, I want you to know, (laughs) just think how much you're going to be missing. You don't have Nixon to kick around anymore. You won't have Nixon to kick around anymore. That was 1962. But of course, Nixon came back. A new Nixon, it was said to capture the presidency in 1968 in what had been regarded, at least until 2016, as one of the most divisive elections of the 20th century. Richard Nixon's hatred for the press moved right into the White House alongside him. It simmered, occasionally boiled over, and animated virtually everything he did as president. Again, here's Stanford professor James Hamilton. And I think it's interesting that he has um, ultimately a very cynical view of politics where your opponents are real enemies. And I think he believed that um, 
the way the politics is played is people don't play by the rules. There aren't really norms or principles, even constitutional principles, that would ultimately restrain your behavior because if you don't violate the rules, um, your opponents will. And that, to me, is what really ended up tripping him up and his vice president, Spiro Agnew. Vice President Spiro Agnew became Nixon's media attack dog, an earlier version perhaps of Sean Spicer or Kellyanne Conway, or perhaps Agnew was Donald Trump's Donald Trump. In 1969, Nixon delivered a televised primetime speech on Vietnam, followed by network instant analysis that was generally critical of what the president had said. Nixon was furious at the networks, and he instructed speechwriter Patrick Buchanan to prepare a takedown of the media elites at CBS, NBC, and ABC. With most Americans having no more than seven television channels in their living rooms, Agnew's bitter denunciation of the concentration of power at the networks, delivered before a partisan crowd in Des Moines, Iowa, commanded a huge audience. Certainly it represents a concentration of power over American public opinion unknown in history. The American people would rightly not tolerate this concentration of power in government. Is it not fair and relevant to question its concentration in the hands of a tiny enclosed fraternity of privileged men elected by no one and enjoying a monopoly sanctioned and licensed by government? The views of a majority of this fraternity do not, and I repeat, not represent the views of America. Again, here's Professor James Hamilton. The three broadcast uh, networks actually carried that speech live, and an estimated 50 million people tuned in, because again, in a world of seven channels, uh, it's hard to flee if the three major networks are covering it. And the networks got 150,000 communications from the audience, and it struck a chord uh, in part because Agnew was saying the media are biased, the media are elite, it's Washington and New York telling the rest of America what to believe. And um, Nixon explicitly said, uh, this is great politics, and we should continue to try to discredit the media. So uh, Agnew gave several speeches after that, uh, condemning the Washington Post and the New York Times. The American who relies upon television for his news might conclude that the majority of American students are embittered radicals that the majority of black Americans feel no regard for their country, that violence and lawlessness are the rule rather than the exception on the American campus. We know that none of these conclusions is true. Perhaps the place to start looking for a credibility gap is not in the offices of the government in Washington, but in the studios of the networks in New York. Nixon began spying on people three months in their office. Former reporter Louis Leibovich. And um, the ironic thing is that if you look at his first term, just the issues and what he accomplished, he could have been one of the best presidents in the world post-World War II era. But um, what was guiding everything that he did was this paranoia and um, his commitment to going toe-to-toe with anybody who opposed him or had opposed him in the past. Nixon also had an enemies list. That's right, really kind of a formal list of people that he hated. 
I think something happened to him as he began to approach 1972 and re-election. CBS News correspondent Daniel Shore was on the enemy's list. Another side of him appeared that I didn't see very clearly then, although in retrospect, having spent a lot of time studying it, I now realize what it was. He had a paranoid side to him, and the paranoid side saw enemies, where Americans would generally talk about rivals, adversaries, and so on. He had this word, enemies, which meant something far beyond somebody who's just running against you for office. And so he began doing these quite weird things, like uh, putting a group of people in the White House called the White House plumbers, who were his own little police force, wiretaps, enemies lists, an FBI investigation of me. As Dan Shore said, FBI agents were dispatched to gather information on him. His neighbors were questioned. And of course, as usually happens, the story got out. The Nixon response was to lie. When that came to public attention, the administration contrived an explanation that said, oh, we had been considering Dan Shore for a government job, and that's why we were doing the FBI background check. And in the future, what we'll do, if you're being considered for a government job, we'll let you know. So uh, he really did try to use all the power of government, including the Department of Justice, uh, lodging antitrust charges against the three broadcast networks. His attorney general, John Mitchell, famously uh, said that uh, Kate Graham might have some um, problems with television licenses because the Washington Post company owned uh, television stations. And um, even the administration at one point considered uh, putting out uh, vicious reports from FBI information about particular uh, journalists. So it really was this enmity and this idea that power is to be used without restraint. Both Richard Nixon and his vice president, Spiro Agnew, were eventually forced from office. Agnew for accepting kickbacks related to contracts made while he'd been governor of Maryland. Nixon for the collection of crimes related to the Watergate break-in, including ordering the Central Intelligence Agency to obstruct the FBI's investigation of the break-in. When he famously fired the special prosecutor investigating the Watergate break-in in in 1973, the episode is now referred to as the Saturday Night Massacre, and more recently has been compared to Donald Trump's firing of the acting attorney general for her refusal to defend his controversial executive order banning immigration. Nixon refused to confront the real issue about why he'd carried out the purge. It became a political fiasco that eventually included the resignations of protest by Nixon's attorney general and the Justice Department's number two ranking official. A few days after the Saturday Night Massacre in 1973, Nixon reverted to form. He attacked the press. I have never heard or seen such outrageous, vicious, distorted reporting in 27 years of public life. I'm not blaming anybody for that. Perhaps what happened is that what we did uh, brought it about, and therefore uh, the media decided that they would have to uh, take that particular on. But when people are pounded night after night uh, with that kind of frantic, hysterical reporting, it naturally shakes their confidence 
yet. Don't get the impression that you arouse my anger. You see, I have that impression. You see, one can only be angry with those he respects. So ultimately, this disrespect for the press, to me, is part of a view of a very cynical view of politics, and it uh, ultimately led Agnew and Nixon to uh, violate laws. And what concerns me about President Trump is I believe he has that same cynical view, and I believe that ultimately it could lead him to violate um, laws, especially about conflict of interest. Frantic, hysterical reporting, Nixon said. Outrageous, distorted reporting. It occurs to me that Richard Nixon was doing precisely in 1973 what Donald Trump is doing now. When the president offers one of his frequent critiques of the press, he always talks of dishonest reporters. Among the most dishonest human beings on earth, he's taken to calling stories that disagree with his view of things fake news. The press lies. It's unfair. Yet, like Richard Nixon, Donald Trump never points out what is precisely wrong with any given story. The sweeping indictment is the tactic of choice for both men, never that something is actually, factually incorrect in the reporting. He indicts all reporting, all reporters, who offer any counter to his narrative. And who knows, that approach may serve Donald Trump well in an era of diminished respect for the institution of the press. It does seem worth noting that in the final analysis, the same approach did not work all that well for Richard Nixon. Virginia Tech political scientist Karen Holt reminds us that Richard Nixon, and John Kennedy for that matter, had only a handful, relatively speaking, of news organizations to deal with, or in Nixon's case, to hate. The Washington Post, the New York Times, a few other major papers, and the three TV networks. Today, the media landscape is vastly different, and public cynicism about the press vastly greater. We have to remember, right, that there were not nearly as many outlets then as there are now. There was not nearly as much utter distrust among so many levels of the American public for what passes as journalism and as news. And here again is First Amendment historian Stephen Solomon. What you have today with Donald Trump, I I think what is new is that he is uh, attacking um, in in a very vitriolic way uh, and using and and not hesitating at all in in using his own name. In fact, he's kind of using his brand or building his brand to attack the media and 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 other uh, other groups, and he's been doing that, you know, for many many months. And former reporter and journalism educator Louis Leibovich. What you saw at the beginning of the Nixon administration was a reflection of his par- his personality, which was paranoia. Paranoia. What you're seeing now is a reflection of Trump's conviction that he can do anything. Stanford's James Hamilton. There was a funny instance back in the George W. Bush administration where um, a aide in the White House famously said, um, journalism has a reality bias. And 
that if you're in the White House, you can create your own reality by creating your own perceptions. And I think that the Trump administration uh, believes that. It believes that if you assert it, if you say it, if you talk about uh, voter fraud, even though um, that has not been substantiated by people who have looked at it, the natural power of the White House as a source of information and entertainment and news, um, I think they believe that uh, they can go directly to the people. They can go through uh, media outlets which appeal to their demographic, and they can undercut and denigrate the mainstream media, and it would not hinder their ability to get their message out, and it would not lower their standing with the people whose support they care most about. Professor James Hamilton says a major challenge for the press in the age of Trump will be to focus relentlessly on delivering verifiable information and to emphasize investigative reporting, what Hamilton defines as information of value to the community that someone in government wants to keep secret. In the old days, the press basically felt like if we generate the fact, that should be enough. And I think in a world of multiple platforms, multiple information streams, that it's also more incumbent to figure out how do I tell a story so that people uh, will believe the facts that I have found. I think it's more important than ever to try to figure out how you actually reach people with the information that you took the time to dig up. The problem, as you know, and I'm sure your listeners know, is we're we're living in a fake news era. New York Times columnist Timothy Egan. And, you know, somebody living in Macedonia can, as we, we documented in a couple of stories, can crank out 200 just outright, you know, just fantasy news stories and get enough of a metric to get Google money for it and create fake news. The good news, I think, is for the fact-based community, the good news for people who aren't into, quote, alternative facts, as Kellyanne Conway said, is that all the major news agencies, news organizations, I'm talking about NPR, the New York Times, the Washington Post, the networks, have had huge increases in circulation and subscriptions and viewership since um, Donald Trump was elected president. So there is a real longing and desire um, from the public to try to hear truthful news. As a former reporter, political press secretary, and over the years an occasional pundit, I find myself in agreement with something the Washington Post's Margaret Sullivan wrote recently. She's the paper's media columnist, often dissecting the strength and shortcomings of the journalism racket. Sullivan said reporters and editors need to remember the lessons of the Nixon era, the lesson that tough, dogged reporting that exposed the crimes of Watergate and revealed the bungled decision-making about Vietnam policy contained in the secret Pentagon Papers, remains highly valued by even the most cynical consumers of the news these days. As Sullivan puts it, and I quote, amid all the depressing numbers in media trust studies, one statistic shines like a beacon. Three of four Americans give the media credit for keeping public officials from wrongdoing. And my old friend Tim Egan, I think, is correct about this. To function well, or even at all, a democracy requires that at least most of the citizens at some basic level have an agreement about basic facts. 
When nothing is deemed reliable, when facts are always fungible, nothing can be taken seriously, even when it is very serious. Be in touch, if you will. You can email. The address is on our website, Many Things Considered. If you have a suggestion for a topic related to our politics and history, please let me know. I'd appreciate it. Many thanks to Gallatin Public Affairs, my old firm, for continuing to support this podcast and hosting our website. If you want to read more on Richard Nixon and the parallels with Donald Trump, Professor James Hamilton's recent article in Washington Monthly is a really good place to start. Hamilton's latest work is called, appropriately, Democracy's Detectives, The Economics of Investigative Journalism. Also check out Louis Leibovich's book, Richard Nixon, Watergate, and the Press, a historical retrospective. And for a more complete look at the subject of presidents and their codependent reporters and editors, look at the professors, the press, and the modern presidency. Virginia Tech scholar Karen Holt has written extensively about American presidents, including her book called Empowering the White House, Governance Under Nixon, Ford, and Carter. NYU professor Stephen Solomon's new book, published last year, is Revolutionary Dissent, How the Founding Generation Created the Freedom of Speech. Tim Egan's latest, The Immortal Irishman, has, maybe thankfully, little to do with the press, but everything to do with the remarkable story of Thomas Francis Marr, the Irish revolutionary who became an American hero. It's a superb story, superbly told. Tim's weekly New York Times column appears online and frequently in the print editions of the Times, which, despite what you may have heard, is not failing. Just for fun, I'll leave you with this. John Kennedy at a press conference March 29th, 1962. I wonder if you could tell us whether, if you had it to do over again, you would uh, work for the presidency and whether you can recommend the job to others. Uh, well, the answer is, uh, the first is yes, and the second is no. I don't recommend it to others. <laughs> At least for a while. President, do you think... Thanks much for listening. Until next time, I'm Mark Johnson. Off to read a newspaper.